This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, alternative media for discerning minds. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to wish everyone around the world a very happy holiday season. And to all our members, thank you once again. As always, you are keeping Veritas alive. And here's another reminder to members who want to participate in the upcoming Insight Veritas show next week. Insight Veritas will be a special edition of this show next Friday, December the 24th. I know there are many of you who have nowhere to go that night, and I want to make sure that you have a show. No guest, just you and I. Go to our website and click on the contact button. You will see a link to Inside Veritas. You can ask me one question. Anything goes. Make sure you include your username first name, and where you are writing from. From those who submit questions, I will raffle one 8GB metal case USB drive with Season 2. It's going to be a fun show, which gives me an opportunity to open the behind-the-scenes door for you. Don't wait. The deadline to submit your question is this coming Sunday, December the 19th. I have to have all the questions in by Sunday so I can start organizing the show around them. This is a celebration of our two-year Veritas anniversary. Tonight's special guest is Adrian Salbucci. You heard him a few weeks ago, and as promised, we brought him back for a full show. We will discuss his new book, The Coming World Government, Tragedy and Hope. We will also discuss areas where other media outlets, even alternative media, is afraid to discuss. If you ever wondered if this show was censored, Although we have to be careful of what we say, tonight is proof that our guests can say exactly what's on their mind. I'm glad to have Adrian back, and you will too. Adrian Salbucci will be with us shortly. To listen to the complete version of this and all our past and future shows, become a member. You will receive instant access to all our shows. 
And remember, Veritas survives on your voluntary subscriptions only. No commercials and no censorship. Just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe and take Veritas with you. And the holidays are almost here. Are you still wondering what to give a loved one? Have you thought of giving the gift of truth? Why not buy them a Veritas subscription? We have three, six, nine months, or one and two years. Or the eight gigabyte USB drive, where they can just plug it in and listen to season one in its entirety with lots of bonuses. Season two will be available for shipping once the year ends. So stop scratching your head. You know, many gifts are put away forever. With Veritas, you know you'll be making a difference in someone's life. Go to our website, veritasshow.com, and order today. And don't get caught off guard. The sneezing and the coughing are already here. I don't need to remind you of this and the very cold weather. Get your MMS right from us, whether you live in the United States or abroad. And if you buy health supplements anywhere, you're paying too much. You can buy thousands of health supplements right from our website. You can buy as many products as you need and only pay $5.95 for shipping. And you also receive a 30-day return policy. What more can you ask? Check them out. Remember how I flew to Los Angeles a few weeks ago to do a segment for the History Channel? Well, I now have authorization from them to announce the date and time. The show is called Brad Meltzer's Decoded, and our show in particular is about ancient prophecies. Write this down. It will air on Thursday, January the 20th, 2011, at 10 p.m. Pacific, 9 p.m. Central. I hope you can watch it. I had a lot of fun doing my part. And if you need to get in touch with me, click on the contact button or join me on Facebook. And now, get ready to explore the coming world government. Have you ever wondered who the world's mastermind is? Where does global power come from? Who has it? And where is it going? What will happen to the dollar? Why do the Zionists want Patagonia? If it's not Palestine, then it will be Argentine. Is WikiLeaks a PSYOP operation? A false flag event that will result in censoring the internet to preserve national security? If you want to believe the mainstream media, stop this audio now. If you want the truth from an unfiltered and uncensored source, don't go anywhere. Adrian Salbucci is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. Dr. Betty Martini, and you're listening to Veritas. Adrian Salpucci is a researcher, author, lecturer, and international business consultant for Buenos Aires, Argentina. Adrian specializes in the analysis of power structures, political, economic, and financial globalization. He's the host of the Buenos Aires, Argentina talk show, El Traductor Radial, and founder of the Argentine Second Republic Movement. He is the author of many books on geopolitics, international, and other topics, and include The World's Mastermind, The Hidden Face of Globalization, and Welcome to the Jungle, Domain and Survival in the New World Order. Tonight, we are inviting back actually somebody who's turning out to be a favorite of all of you after you listen to a test, if you will, about a month ago. And that would be Adrian Salbucci. I have a book right here that he sent me a few days ago, and I cannot put it down. The title of his book is The Coming World Government, Tragedy and Hope. And let me read you a very small paragraph so that I can give you a perspective of the topics we'll be discussing tonight. 
This book is written from a different viewpoint than most of what is written on the subject of global power structures. It reflects the so-called New World Order, as seen from a very different perspective. From the perspective of a citizen living in his native Argentine Republic in South America, a faraway underdog country that time and again has found itself on the losing side of world affairs. To a great extent, this has been due to our own mistakes. But more often than not, this has been because, right or wrong, we lack the necessary power to ensure our objectives and interests are achieved, irrespective of those who would oppose that. And once again, directly from the beautiful country of Argentina in the capital of Buenos Aires, I would like to introduce our friend, Adrian Salbucci. Hello, Adrian. Welcome back. Good evening. Great to be back on the show again, Mel. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And as I was telling the audience, you have so many topics that you discuss, but I'm so glad that you surprised me with your book because we can really focus and encapsulate a lot of the aspects of your research into this book. First of all, when I read the title, The Coming World Government, Tragedy and Hope, something struck me. That subtitle, Tragedy and Hope, why did you choose that subtitle? Well, in, in a way, it's a tribute to a book that I know a lot of us have read, and it, it, I, I certainly did, and it was a, an eye-opener, uh, which is Carol Quigley's Tragedy and Hope. It's a book written sure. back in the 60s, and Carol Quigley was a university professor. He was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. He was a real and true insider, and he seems to have gotten fed up with a lot of it. Not all of it, but a lot of it, and I think it had a lot to do with the fact that he saw that the uh, power structure centered on the Council on Foreign Foreign relations was in turn very subservient to a more uh, an older and perhaps more mature power structure centered in London, which he called the uh, you know the, uh, the 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 British establishment, so to speak, centered around the Fabian Society and the uh, Royal Institute of International Affairs and the clubby clubby atmosphere so typical to Britain. And you can sense that he he's a bit annoyed at the fact that you know America was in a way, uh, at least in his times, uh, rather sub coordinated to the power structures in Britain. So he wrote A Tragedy and Hope as a very vast description, even delving into the problem of money and currency. And then he also wrote another one, The Anglo-American Establishment. And they are powerhouses of information and, and data. And they come from somebody who's not an outsider, who's not a, definitely not a conspiracy theorist, but somebody who's lived it from the inside. And he realized that a lot of that had anything to do but with American national interests and with American interests in general. So he, he, he described this in a very, very academic and very uh, scholarly manner. Wasn't Quigley a mentor for Bill Clinton? Yes, everybody was shocked that when Bill Clinton was inaugurated as president back in 1991, Three. actually. Uh, yeah, 1993, sorry, 1993. Uh, in his uh, inauguration speech, he uh, he, tr he rendered tribute to Carol Quigley as one of his professors. And when everybody went scrambling to find out who Carol Quigley was, because he's not somebody who you would normally uh, hear about publicly. I mean, only people who, who, who delve into these matters more deeply would actually know who, who he is. Uh, they realized that he wrote this uh, this wonderful book, Tragedy and Hope, which is about 700, 800 pages long. I actually read the whole thing. It took me quite a while, and I underlined a lot of it, and I used it to uh, reference uh, another book I have, which is uh, El Cerebro del Mundo, the, the, the World's Mastermind. It's a, it's a book in Spanish that, uh, luckily, uh, we've already reached the fifth edition. It's a book that's done very well in the Spanish-speaking countries, and I've taken many tracts from uh, Tragedy and Hope by Carol Quigley, um, because uh, because it's it, it's so scholarly, it's so clear, and it's so unbiased and, and balanced. So I thought I would put that into the subtitle of this uh, new new book, the coming world government tragedy and hope, with a question mark at the end because. This the, the coming world government definitely is a tragedy, and there still is hope. But I put a question mark because the hope side, Mel, depends on a, 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 a sufficient number of people, a critical mass, as we like to call it, 
becoming aware that we are now undergoing a window of opportunity. I would say a magnificent window of opportunity, but it's not going to last that long. So whatever we do to really overcome these people, and they can be overcome, and whatever we do to take our countries back, and whatever we do to bring back traditional values uh, into the home, into the neighborhood, into the county, into the, the state, and into the nation, and amongst nations, it's something that a lot of people like yourself, like myself, will have to do much sooner than later because otherwise if you project what these people are planning the future of the world can be extremely bleak and that's what the book is all about and you mentioned the world's mastermind and this is something that i would like to discuss uh, tonight but i like it that your book gives a perspective from where you are and it goes from there Globally. But we all remember, to start, we all remember the song written by Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice, uh, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. Yeah. In the book, you say, do cry for me, Argentina. Please explain. Yeah, because, well, that was a, a, all of all those who saw the Broadway and, and London West End show Evita. That yes. was very popular in the 70s and the 80s, and even the beginning of the 90s. Uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber, naturally, who's a very talented British uh, composer. Uh, there was one, one of the key songs, probably the one most remember, is Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, where Evita Peron, who is dying, she died in 1952 when, when Juan Peron was in office, uh, allegedly asked Argentina, you know, don't cry for me because I, even though I'll be dead, I'll be looking after you, so to speak. And uh, I thought that, that it, it's a fitting title because it's something that sort of identifies the idea of what Argentina is for many people. And I, instead of the don't, I say, do cry for me, Argentina, because in a way, we have been a testing ground or a testing bench for, uh, for many things that are later uh, projected onto the world scene. For example, I feel that Argentina has been in a small scale. They have tested to see how people react with such things as social turmoil, with such things as banking collapses, hyperinflation. There aren't that many. There haven't been that many hyperinflations in the world. We all probably read about in our school school books the uh, dreadful hyperinflation that Germany uh, suffered in 1923 and 1924. Hungary underwent a hyperinflationary process after the Second World War. And the third largest in, in the history of the world is Argentina's in 1989. I understand that then, and I think it's in Zambia, uh, one of the African countries, they had an even worse one in 2006-2007, but until 2002, uh, the, the worst hyperinflation in history, the third worst, was the one that Argentina suffered in 1989, where we had 10,000% inflation in one year. And I can uh, assure you, my friend, that is tremendous. That is, you see, you just look at it on a number, you say, okay, 10,000%, it's a big figure, okay. But when you, tr when you translate that big figure for inflation onto the social scene, it means turmoil. It means uh, lack of, uh, you're not being able to get your groceries in the local supermarket. It means entire cities that were isolated through, due to social violence during 1989. And I'm talking about the third largest city in Argentina, Rosario. So uh, when you look at these, you know, very often we look at figures, a foreign debt of 200 billion that Argentina has, a bailout for 600 billion that you've had with your bankers, foreclosures in, in such and such a, uh, an amount. You just look at figures because newspapers tend to give us cold figures, but you have to translate those cold figures and what to, what they really mean to people who are made of flesh and blood, and very often those cold figures mean death, destruction, incredible hardship, and the frustration of literally millions of young lives throughout the Americas and throughout the world. Is Argentina a guinea pig? Hold on, let me rephrase. Bad choice of semantics. I don't want my brothers and sisters in Argentina to be offended by that phrase. Is Argentina a beta test ground, beta, beta testing ground for the elite. Yes, yes, yes. I, I, not the only one, but definitely one of the key ones, and for different reasons. One of the reasons being that Argentina has traditionally been the black sheep. You know, you've got 20 white sheep, and you always have a black sheep. Yes. Why do I say this? Because uh, during the First World War, when, when most of the countries, I mean, let's, 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 let's take this historical perspective. America was or became a very powerful nation, especially at, during and after the First World War. And during that war, when most of the countries in America took sides, sided with America, sided with the Brits or the British against Germany at that time. I'm talking about the First World War. In other words, the, 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 German, uh, the, the German Reich of that time, Austria-Hungary, 
Turkey, we were uh, absolutely neutral. And that was something that was not liked. As a matter of fact, when Woodrow Wilson proposed founding this, the uh, League of Nations, since uh, the president of Argentina at that time, Hippolyto Yrigozhin, thought that it was too lopsided, too asymmetrical and too unfair, he told uh, the, uh, the Argentine ambassador, just come back and we're not going to be a member of that. Then comes the Second World War. And again, we had an even bigger war where you had America, Britain, France, and, and, and the Soviet Union, the former Soviet Union, fighting again, Germany, Italy, and Japan, and Austria. And again, Argentina was neutral all the way to the end. Think of it. Brazil sent troops to fight in Europe. All the countries in the Americas declared war on Germany. Argentina didn't. We only did so, very cheeky, in March of 1945. In agreement with the Germans so that we could confiscate their their assets instead of America. <laughs> and what happens in 1946, in 1945, after America had saved the world and Britain, too, and the, and the Soviet Union, too, had saved the world from fascism, etc. Juan Perón, on the 17th of October, makes a very popular revolution, which looks very fascist, unfortunately, because it was the mass of the people coming out into the streets and literally dragging him and placing him as as president of Argentina. And when he was president, he wasn't really a fascist at all. He was just a very uh, independent-minded guy. He did a lot of things that were permanent challenges against British power, American power, and the growing, po growing power elite. For example, they sent a mission to, to tell Argentina, hey, don't you want to be a member of the IMF? And he sent them packing back home. Uh, the, after Germany fell, the Americans took their, their uh, German scientists, the Soviets took their, their, so their German scientists, Argentina did the same. So again, they had to literally apply a lot of violence to kick him out very violently with a lot of dead people in 1955. And yet Perón insisted and he came back. Good God. So he came back and this time what they've done is they've destroyed the Peronist ideology, which is quite interesting, by destroying it ideologically. In other words, it was infiltrated by the left, infiltrated by the right, and now Peronism is just a mess. It's, it, it's in existence, so to speak. And on top of that, and, I, and I'll, I'll round this out this way, on top of that, in 1982, a group of stupid military officers recovered the Malvina Islands, and they fought well. They fought so well that I have an article from The Economist, the British magazine The Economist. Uh, from March 1984, where it says, it makes a long analysis of the Falklands Wars, the Falkland Malvina War, and they said, had it not been for American help, there was no way we could have recovered the Malvina Islands. And on top of that, the Argentinians sank 15 ships. They put something like 30 ships out of, out of, uh, out of uh, service, and we literally bombed and almost sank their two uh, key aircraft carriers. So I think somebody in, in the global power list must have said, if these Argentinians can fight so well and have a lot of popular support, can do that with a really, really dreadfully bad government, what would they be able to do if they had a good government? So I think that after the Malvinas War, etc., they, they imposed democracy, quote-unquote, upon us, which is really basically uh, global power, global money-based uh, democracy. And they literally deconstructed the entire country. And now we are really a deconstructed country. And to give you just one example of this, when we had our last collapse in 2001, 2002, where we were not able to get the money out of the banks, where anybody who had dollars was not given dollars, but just basis at a very arbitrary rate of exchange, they made an experiment in psychological warfare because they wanted to see how, how long a people will actually go and scream and kick and bite and yell at the bankers and banging with the cacerolas, with the pots and pans mm -hmm. and so forth. And they just sort of, I think they made an experiment in letting us uh, put out a lot of steam. And after the days turned into weeks and the weeks turned into months, people cooled off. The money never came back. We were never given our money back as we should have been. The banks really had their day because not one single bank folded. Not one single bank folded. And yet 50% of the population fell under the poverty line and most of it never came back. And they've probably taken a lot of lessons from that. How to deconstruct the country, how to change its mindset completely. And for example, how to micromanage or macromanage, I should say, a banking collapse where all the losses are thrown onto the populace right in front of their 
their faces and work it in such a way that even if it takes you a couple of months, maybe seven, eight, nine, ten months, people will end up accepting it. Those experiments are now being thrown at you Mm -hmm. because those same lessons are being used for Americans to right in front of your faces. They are bailing out the banks, but they're not bailing out the people. That's happening in America. So it's a social engineering project. I'm glad we're we're doing a full show here, Adrian, because last time I shotgunned you with so many questions and we only had a limited amount of time. But I want you, if you could, paint us a picture of the worst time. And I know you've lived through some of those hyperinflationary periods in Argentina. Paint us a picture of the average Argentinian waking up in the morning during that time and going to bed at night. What did he or she go through? Oh, it was really dreadful, and I'll give you two uh, separate examples, which I think uh, will, will sort of set set the, the, the record on that. In 1989, as I said, in the month of June and in the month of July, we had uh, one month had something like 170%, the next month had 200% inflation. It accumulated, or rather it aggregated throughout the whole year of 1989 to 10,000% inflation. So, for example, July of 1989, what was it like to go and do your shopping? Well, you would wake up one morning, you would put on the television set, and the dollar has shot up to God knows how many pesos. What's the price of something? You had no idea of knowing. You went to the supermarket, and this was before the time where you had everything barcoded, and they just couldn't mark the prices up fast enough. So if you wanted a pack of cookies, you just went to the to the place in the, super, in the supermarket where they were all more or less piled up, and you just chose the one with the lowest price, which is the one they hadn't had time enough to, to mark the price up. Mm. And when you went to the cashier, she had no way of knowing whether that price was right or wrong. She would just, if, if you took it, she would just charge you for it and you would pay for it. You see, when you have hyperinflation, one of the things that breaks down is the whole concept of value. If something is worth, I don't know, uh, uh, 16,000 pesos, I don't know, a, a liter of milk at that time, because those were the numbers, you have no way whether to know whether that is right or wrong. All you can do is you say, a liter of milk is 16,000 pesos. I've got 16,000 pesos in my wallet. I need the milk. I'll take it. Because one day, and I think I mentioned this on, on our last show, a gallon of Coca-Cola might be worth two times or three times as much as a gallon of gas. On the following day, a gallon of gas is worth two or three times a gallon of Coca-Cola. There's just no way of knowing what, what, what was the right or the wrong price for something. The real estate market completely collapsed. If you wanted to buy a car, nobody would sell you a car. No car dealer would sell you a car. They preferred to just shut their doors, shut their doors down and wait for everything to clear up. Mm. What ended up happening, happening and, and this is just, just final, the final idea, is the whole chain distribution chain just broke down and you had a lot of cities and a lot of towns that had no supplies of food. There was a very dreadful case where uh, some folks in, in, on a highway intercepted a, a meat packing truck and just took it all t- took it all back home. They just, you know, uh, t- took all the food that they needed with them. And uh, that was really a very dreadful time and it, and it created a lot of hardship. And the, the irony is that we all had, we were all formerly millionaires because we had million pistol banknotes clogged our wallets, but that million pesos would only get you maybe a kilo of a pound of bread or, or something like that. And the other one, I would now fast forward from 1989 to 2001 and 2002, is when in order to save the banking system and the private banks, a caretaker government in the hands of former President Fernando de la Rua and that dreadful economy minister that we've had to suffer called Domingo Cavallo. Domingo Cavallo, a total Rockefeller man, a member of the Council of, uh, of the uh, uh, Trilateral Commission, and a total protege of David Rockefeller, George Soros, and the Rothschilds, um, uh, he, 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 they passed a law whereby you could only withdraw 250 pesos per week from your bank account. And uh, uh, most people here did not have bank accounts. You see, Argentina was, uh, only had about 50% of the population having any relationship with banking whatsoever. So most people just had no way of getting any money to buy their basic groceries. And that was absolutely, that was even worse because not having any money whatsoever meant that people would, well, there was violence, obviously, that was one of the uh, one of the, the, the immediate results, but a lot of people had to start up bartering clubs. Uh, you would have to find new ways of, well, you, you lost your job. What am I going to do to eat tonight? How am I going to pay my bills? Uh, where will I get at least some money? We had to do, to do all sorts of experiments. For example, I remember I had, I have four children, 
who are already adult by, by, by that time. Well, I told them all, go and open a bank account. So I figure if we can only take 250 pesos per week, well, I told my employer, you pay me in four or five checks and I'll put those four or five checks into these four or five accounts and we'll see how much money we can put together. And, you know, you had to do oh, ridiculous things like that. So it was really very, very difficult. And as I say, that was even worse than the previous uh, crisis because uh, GDP fell in six months by about 40%. Then it picked up. And uh, the dreadful part is that half the population fell below the poverty line. Mind you, in a country like Argentina that always prided itself of having a very strong middle class. And that 50% that fell, well, most of it just stayed down there. They got used to it. That's that's another dreadful thing. It's in this psychological warfare, this social engineering, thanks to TV and thanks to all these the, the entertainment industry, the people who fell down and their their economic uh, level fell and their social level fell and naturally their cultural level also fell. They have been coaxed into getting used to it and accepting it. What you're saying is so important, and the part that you said. We prided ourselves in, in having a very strong middle class. Folks, do you realize that it's almost as if we're going through a time machine here? These may be the words we may be using in the next few years when we, we say, remember when the middle class used to rule? Right yep. now, the middle class is really trying to remain afloat. And for that, let me take a quick detour. You know, Adrian, I keep hearing the word in the United States of recession. If I had a dollar for every time I've heard the word recession in the past two years, I'd be rich. There's an old joke among economists that states a recession is when your neighbor loses his job. A depression is when you lose your job. Can you define and explain the difference between recession and depression so that we can know where we really are? Well, in, in practice, because, I mean, you know, the, the economists will all give you slightly differing uh, interpretations. For right. example, formally is when you have, I think, more than three quarters of, uh, of a non-growth and so forth. You're formally, uh, you go from the R word recession into the D word depression. But I think that, you know, one of the mistakes that I think we all make, and I point this out in, in my book, is that we think that all problems have to be tackled from an economic and or financial stance. What's the problem? The problem is that the Dow Jones fell? What's the problem in Argentina that the value of the dollar rose? What's the problem in such and such a country? Inflation exceeded 10 or 12 percent or GDP only grew by four and should have grown by six. We, we tend to put everything down into economic terms, which is basically Marxist, by the way, yes. because, you know, Marxism puts eco the economy in the center. And we forget that the center must always be man. The, the, the capabilities, the potential of man. Does the economy really give a young guy, a young girl, the possibility to truly realize his potential? So if anything, when you look at a country like Argentina, there is no way, let me, let me, let me, let me really stress this, there is no way that Argentina can ever fall into a depression or a recession, or I should say a recession or much less a depression. You would say, well, what's this guy talking about? And here's the, the explanation. We are a territory which has so much potential wealth, raw materials, oil, gas, mining, just about any kind of mining you can possibly think of, from copper to aluminum to uh, gold to silver to anything, uranium, we've got, you name it, we've got it. Potable water, arable lands. We have uh, like millions and millions of lives, uh, heads of livestock. Uh, you can add just about all the wealth. And when you say, okay, put a price tag on Argentina, you'd say impossible. It's trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. And we have the sixth largest territory in the world. Just to give an idea. I know a lot of people have know, are familiar with the map of South America, but it's good to stress this point. Argentina is as long from north to south as the United States of America is from Maine to California. That's right. We're a very big country, and we've got everything. Cold climate, hot climate, mountainous areas, lush vegetation, ar arable lands, the Pampas, desert, desert lands down south. So you would, and, and, and if you were to say, well, how many people are you? We're about 43 million people, and we should be 143 million people or maybe 243 million people we could we would really be able to accommodate 243 million people so you would figure well okay you you live in such an immensely rich country you're only 43 million you must all live like dukes or at least like the swiss and yet you hear me saying, hey, no, hang on a minute. Half of our population is below the poverty line. We literally have undernourished children in the poorer provinces of Tucumán, Santiago del Estero, Formosa. 
So you figure, well, what's going on here? And the what's going on can be easily answered in the sense that the global power system through local caretaker governments, because we have our own huge share of responsibility in this, have imposed an economic and monetary system that is guaranteed to ensure that the country will always bite the dust and that all those huge, wonderful, incredible resources are sucked out by the global corporate overworld. A little bit is trickled back because they know they need uh, we're 43 million, they need say about 4.5 to 5 million local managers who, have, who are well trained, well coached, well mentored and, and, and have the capabilities to run this big estancia, this big farm for them and the rest can just go to hell basically, that's, that's the answer. For the rest, I'll try to see where where I can, I can incorporate a part of the population to be a local market so that they will buy cell phones and cars and a couple of other stuff. And then if you're going to have a couple of million who are going to die of hunger, well, it's not my problem. That's the basic message you get from the corporate overworld. So you have an immensely rich country that is permanently squashed, that is permanently on its knees because the wrong policies are instituted, the wrong policies are implemented. And on top of it is, if I were to tell you, well, you see, Mel, we were invaded by blah, 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 whoever, and they imposed this on us, it would say, yeah, poor guys, you were invaded like the French in 1940 or something. But no, we were never invaded. This is done by locals who have Argentine identity documents, but are not in the least bit identified with the Argentine national interest. A lot of them are well known, the Kirchners, Mr. Cavallo, Mr. Menem, Mr. De La Rua, and a whole army of others. They're provincial mafia bosses. Absolutely. Provincial mafia bosses is the exact name. The Menems are a provincial mafia. The Kirchners are a dreadful provincial mafia from Santa Cruz, but most every other uh, province has basically the same problem because it's a basic model. You see, that's that's the thing that I try to mention in, 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 my, in, in the book and in all the stuff we say. If Argentina on its own were the only country having this, well, you would turn around and say, well, hold on, Adrian, I think you guys really blow it time and again. But when you look at the problems of Argentina and what we've gone through, and then I look at Greece, and then I look at Iceland, and then now I look at Ireland, and I see the Spaniards and the Portuguese trembling because they realize what's going to happen to them pretty much pretty soon too. Right. And I look at California, and I look at Mexico, and I look at the United States as a whole, and I figure, well, hold on a minute. It's just slightly different manifestations of the same basic problem. So that is showing you that there is a basic global model, and that model is geared against the people. It's as simple as that. And just uh, going back, I was just reading yesterday, that this information was just released, folks. The Fed made $9 trillion dollars in overnight loans to major banks and Wall Street firms during the financial crisis. And these $9 trillion have absolutely nothing backing them. This influx of fake money is what really prevented the depression. And with this and all the quantitative easing, Adrian, nice words for printing money out of uh, thin, thin air. It, don't call it inflation. Call it quantitative easing. <laughs> right, exactly. Printing money out of thin air. What other tricks can they produce to avert a financial collapse then? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, here I think that again, if, if if you bear with me, I would I would make a, a, a I would I would take sort of a, a, a um, historical perspective again, at, at least from our point of view. The global power elite is neither capitalist, nor Marxist, nor socialist. They have no ideology. They are just, it's, it's a lot of it is old European money. We, we must understand that. And it, it's very important to understand that things are different from, than they are from America. Europe, for example, where the real brains behind all of this seems to lie, has a lot of very old money. Some of it is even attached to local nobility, whether it be the crown in Holland, the, the British crown, the, the Spanish crown, the, uh, uh, the, the Spanish crown has, is a traditional ally of the, uh, of, of the Brits, for example, and so forth. And then you have some old money in America. You have the Rockefellers, you have the Carnegies, you have the Harrimans, the Vanderbilts, and so forth. But these people don't really have any ideology. We tend to think erroneously, in my, my opinion, that they are capitalists. Why? Because for the last 150, 180 years, the capitalist system has been the backbone of their power and wealth. So they've said, hey, we stumbled upon something really good. Let's go on. And growth especially after the Second World War, just went on and on, and billions of dollars were, were really made by them, and these huge corporations actually grow after the Second World War. But sometime during 1970-something, 71 maybe when Nixon declared uh, they took the dollar off the Britain gold Woods. standard or whatever, yeah, sometime during the 70s, 
capitalist growth started to taper off. So they said, uh-oh, there's something, something's wrong here. We, we're going to have to see how we, since we can't grow the pie as fast as we want, let's bring down, let's bring down uh, the, the expenses. And one of the key things, and this ties, ties in with globalization, is what did globalization do? It opened the borders so the corporations could say, instead of building my TV sets and my computers and my cars with very expensive workers from London, Paris, or Chicago, or Detroit, I'll put my factory in Taiwan, in Indonesia, or in Mexico, and I'll bring down my expenses because Outsourcing. I pay those. Yeah, I outsource them and pay a lot less. Second thing they did privatizations, where Argentina was a tremendous, tremendous victim through uh, President Menem and Domingo Cavallo, the uh, economy minister. What did they say? There are these wonderful revenues on oil, gas, electricity, mining, going into the coffers of national treasuries. Let's privatize. We've got to work, work, work our way around this, but let's privatize those companies so that those revenue flows will go into the corporate overworld. But that also came to an end, finally. So what did they do? And this is this is the tragedy, I think, of the modern world. They said, okay, let's invent something totally financial, which basically is a bit more complex than this, the derivatives market, which just grows numbers, but there's no economic counterpart, because at least if you privatize a state oil company, well, you have oil, you have something there, you have EPFS oil, or you have, uh, I don't know, uh, the electricity being sold to people. But when you went into the derivatives market, there was nothing there. It was just numbers. It was fake growth, and it grew, and it grew like a, like a, like a, like a cancerous malignant tumor and now it is killing the capitalist system so you would figure are these guys committing suicide no they are micromanaging or macromanaging i should say they are engineering the controlled collapse of the entire present financial system because they want to replace it with the coming world government which is going to be anything but democratic anything but market but market economy it will basically be a very authoritarian system that i think the closest comparison we can make is with stalinist russia <laughs> or the stalinist soviet union rather in uh, in the united states we say that we have the best government that money can buy Absolutely. countries in in south america with so many resources do you really have democracies there or are they also the best that money can buy well, that, that's that's one of the chapters I put in the in, in the book. Called, I call it "Democracy: True or False," in which I describe a lot of it. A lot of it has to do naturally with Argentina. But you figure, uh, look at a country like Argentina with all the wealth that I just mentioned and so forth. If you're the global power elite, you would say, "Okay, invade them." But hold on a minute. After we've seen the Germans invading France and America invading Iraq, to, to take a, a, an old and a new, a new example, invasions look very nasty in the 5 and the 6 o'clock news. Besides, invasion will always cost you your own deaths and your own losses and your own soldiers and so forth. And means a lot of local families are going to be grief-stricken and they're going to really become uh, asking, you know, becoming pacifists and say, we don't want any more war and so forth. So in, in the case of Argentina, as with many other countries, including America, they designed a totally different system, which is what I say, what is falsely called democracy is merely the the, the, the favorite political system for the global power, uh, money power elite, because all they have to do in a case like Argentina is come down here, get some intel, intelligence going, and identify and say, okay, who are the local politicians and the local journalists and the local business people and the local elite who are willing for, for money reasons, for prestige, for fame, for a whole host of very human psychological reasons, are willing to align their activities and work for me? What do they need? Well, one of them is going to say, I need a $30,000 per, per month salary. You've got it. What do you want? I want to have a lot of prestige. You've got it. You, your, your articles are going to be published in the New York Times. What do you want? I want to be the president of Argentina. Hmm. They'll take a couple of those and say, okay, what would you do with this? What would you do? What would, and they will blackball a few, and then they will whiteball others. And when they finally have all the people identified, they're going to say, okay, guys, we're going to have elections. And they will finance the campaigns of the guy who wants to be president, the one, guy who wants to be senator. The, the lady who wants to be a, a deputy or a representative, and the governor and the mayor, and they fully control the three the three main branches of government: the executive, the legislative, and the judiciary, mm -hmm. and the three levels of government: the federal the provincial, as we call them here, and the municipal. All you have to do is finance that with money, call it democracy, and then every so many years ask the people, which in the case of Argentina is obligatory, to vote. 
Because what happens, and, and, and this is the example I use for Argentina, and it's really dreadful. The worst thing that this, which is the, the best democracy that money can buy, as you, as you aptly said, the very worst thing that this democracy has to offer Argentina is a president who's been financed by drug money and by uh, uh, suitcases full of do, uh, U.S. dollar banknotes uh, coming from Venezuela. You probably know that Cristina Kirchner's 2007 uh, electoral election campaign, they discovered that she had some contributions from some uh, drug-producing laboratories and uh, Hugo Chavez from Venezuela sent something like millions and millions yes. of dollars for her campaign and one of those suitcases was yes. intercepted of, in a, a really dreadful scandal so the worst thing that it can offer you is that it's, 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 it's somebody who's placed as president with drug money and with money slushing and so, and so forth but let's go to the other end what's the best thing that this democracy can offer you somebody like Mr. Macri who is now the uh, mayor of Buenos Aires or Mr. De Narvaez, who wants to be the governor of Buenos Aires, who are two very, very wealthy, rich uh, businessmen who can easily go on television and say, hey, I'm Mauricio Macri. I am uh, Fernando de Narvaez. I don't need to steal money. I don't need to have drug money because I'm very rich and I can finance my own campaign. And they're right. So the best thing that democracy can offer you is a government of the wealthy, of the rich. And where do you stand? Where do I stand? We are just passive onlookers who go to work every day, who ha don't have a word, don't have any say, and the only thing that we can participate in this so-called democracy is every two or three or four years, go on Sunday and vote for one of these SOBs, basically. So, you see, they've coaxed us into thinking that we have democracy, which we don't, and on top of it, as though democracy were the only system where, which, which, which is something that many people in America point out, and certainly they do down here, the word democracy does not appear once in your constitution. We need to restore our Republican institutions, which is something very different, but it doesn't have to be through a democracy totally subservient and subordinated to the money powers. What I tell people when they ask me, so Mel, are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? I say to them, do you want the left hand or the right hand to be stealing from you? It's the same person, same hydra behind the scenes. But in South America, it seems that they continue transforming again and again. First, it was socialism. Then it was neo-fascism, like Franco-Spain. We had Pinochet in Chile, Stresner in, in Paraguay, which were all part of Operation Condor, which targeted opposition. The opposition all against communism. In the case of Cuba, conversely, we have uh, Cuba where they went from one dictator to another one. But has there been a return to democracy in the region, or is it just another name for today's mass population control? No, yeah, it, it is another name, and I, and I can give you an example why. When the world, I mean, it, this has a lot to do with, it, one, of the, one of the chapters in my books is called Global Power, and, and I describe what power is, and I even go so far as to put a few, perhaps a little bit tongue-in-cheek rules of power, and one of the things I do say in that book, and I, and, and I always say in all my conferences here, the world is not governed by democracy, nor by international law, nor, nor by the pursuit of justice, and blah, blah, blah. The world is governed by power. And power has a rule of iron which says those that have power use it to promote their objectives and interests. And those who do not have power, Argentina, for example, have no choice but to suffer the consequences of the actions taken by those that have power to promote their objectives and, and interests. So that is the basic stage that we all have to understand. What is Argentina's problem? That we're stupid? That we're bad? That we're not just? No, the problem of Argentina is we don't have enough power to protect our own objectives and interests against the global power elite. It's that simple because everything that's done in the world nowadays is done by arm twisting, whether it be mili military in the last instance, but it's done through diplomatic arm twisting, media arm twisting, political, economic, financial, and so forth. So when, when you take that into account and when you understand that that is is happening, you figure, well, why has, what's been happening throughout all of Latin America now, not just Argentina? When you had the bipolar world, Latin America was America's backyard. It still is, but let's say at that time, it was America's backyard. Every time the Soviet Union messed around here, America would say, no way. And in order to get rid of, our, of, of, of the, uh, the Soviet threat, 
which was which was real. Uh, um, there can be no doubt about it. In the 1970s, we had tremendous social turmoil from Moscow and Havana-backed and financed guerrilla groups that were totally artificial. They had nothing to do with with our own local people. So they said, okay, we will say okay to local military generals who are more or less trustworthy and whom we have trained. The military coups in Argentina, Mr. Pinochet in Chile, who's probably the most famous of them, as is Mr. Galtieri, uh, Garastasu Medici in Brazil, you had military in, in uh, Peru, you had the military in Ecuador, you had the military in Uruguay, you had the military in Paraguay, and in Bolivia. You figure, okay, like Franklin D. Roosevelt once said when somebody said, hey, but Mr. Somoza from Nicaragua is an SOB, and he said, yeah, he might be an SOB, but he's our SOB. So right. they tolerated him. So they tolerated during the 60s and 70s, when, when the Soviet Union was getting really aggressive, they said, forget about democracy, that's no good, because we have national security, all the military. But when, they, when the decision was taken way up in the power pyramid, and Bignu Brzezinski described this 15 years earlier wonderfully in his book, Between Two Ages, The Role of America in the Technotronic Age, when they decided that the Soviet Union had to go because we're going to move on from the bipolar world to globalization, they said, hey, hold on a minute, what are we going to do with all those military regimes? And all of a sudden, and this started during the Carter years especially, they all woke up to human rights. Oh my God, human rights? They're not being respected in Argentina, they're not being respected in Uruguay, in Paris in Brazil, in, 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 in Chile. So they started a whole new campaign saying, well, basically, we don't need these military guys anymore. Besides, they're very hard-headed and they're very square. Let's now start something where the people will want to get to, to back to democracy. So it is no coincidence, just, just as all the military coups throughout Latin America took place almost at the same time, all of a sudden, we all became democratized also at the same time, starting in the 80s, when it was already quite well agreed that the Soviet Union had to go, we're going to run, go into, in, into globalization. Globalization is the erosion of national sovereignty. Yes. And you can say anything you like about, uh, about the military, but the military are very nationalist, whether it be in Chile, Argentina, Brazil. We're not going to be able to talk these, these, these military officers into giving up national sovereignty. So we're going to have to really push them aside. If Argentina invades the Falkland Islands and they really bungle it, perfect, beautiful. That'll give us the perfect, and, and, and really our military were so stupid that they gave it served to them in a, in a silver platter. The perfect excuse to get rid of them. And down went the uh, the uh, Democrat, the uh, military regime in Argentina and like a domino effect. The same happened in Paraguay, the same happened in Bolivia, in Peru, in Chile. Pinochet was the, was the, was the one that went in the most orderly fashion because he was really quite shrewd. But they all went. So the fact that all these things took place almost simultaneously is is a reflection that there, this is also part of a, of a, of a master plan throughout the, the whole continent. And when you talk about Somoza being uh, the United States SOB, I think of uh, how in the United States our Congress has the lowest approval rating in history. But then the re-election rate that they have is the highest. I think it was about 90%. And you wonder why, and the reason for it is that we can call them crooks, but people say, yeah, he may be a crook, but he's our crook. He brings money to our towns. But during our last conversation, I told you that I, I made a presentation next to Domingo Cavallo in uh, 1995 at the Los Angeles uh, World Trade Center. You said he was a Rockefeller, or is a Rockefeller and Soros protege. I didn't know that, but I'm not surprised. But what I'm surprised about is that the Kirchners, and, and folks, you may be wondering why I'm talking so much about Argentina. And the reason for it, because this is a global show, is because, as I said earlier in the show, it is a beta testing ground for what may happen in the United States, in Europe, and so on. But the late Argentina president, and now his wife, Cristina Kirchner, they portray a, a leftist facade, if you will. But at the end of the day, they, quote unquote, report to the same global cabal, don't they? Uh, absolutely. And I would even say that the Kirchners are far more dangerous than, for example, somebody like Menem and Cavallo, because Menem and Cavallo always showed, they had no choice but to show, that they were clearly, absolutely, and, 
Yeah, and completely aligned to the banking cartel and the, and, and, and the whole global power structure. There is a famous phrase that Menem, who is very charismatic, he was very simpatico, as we say here. But he once he was once asked, he said, but listen, when you did your presidential campaign in 1989, you said that you were going to make a, a production revolution, that if necessary, you were going to recover the Malvinas Falklands with blood and fire. You had a really nationalist thing. And yet when you came to power, you did exactly the opposite. You deregulated the nation state you privatized everything you weakened the armed forces why is that and the guy looked at the camera and said well if i had said what i was really going to do nobody would have voted for yeah. me he he had he had to to pay to say something like that yeah. but at least people know this guy is an sob and and, and now it would be impossible for him to ever be reelected in office however the kirchners are a much more dangerous and complex beast because they are a true reflection of what I call the ideology of globalization and even the ideology of the world government or this transition we're living in right now, which is very well represented by international social democracy. And what does international social democracy tell you? They are split, I believe, into three major and very complex uh, channels. On the social and cultural stage, they are very left-wing. They are progressive, as they call them down here. They are, for example, anti-military, anti-church, pro-abortion, pro-gay marriage. They, they have that very, very, they, they're like the Democrats in, in, in America, so right. to speak, like the Democratic Party. On the political stage, they are totally center. They fully respect the present power structure they wouldn't dream of saying hey you know we gotta we gotta alert people about the global power elite the coming world government no no no, no. they say stick to it be very aligned be very disciplined don't say anything and on the, the financial and economic side they are totally right-wing they wouldn't think in the case of argentina of investigated investigating our illegal and illegitimate foreign debt they will just pay they will always protect the bankers yeah, even kirchner would said we're going to kick the imf back and yet the IMF is in as ever. I'll give you one example. Whilst Kirchner to the people was saying, we're not going to bow down to the IMF demands anymore. We're not going to give any dice to the, to the IMF. In January 2006, for no good reason, or perhaps for some very good reason now that you come to think of it, uh, President Kirchner paid the full, I, and I stress, the full amount of owed by Argentina to the IMF, $10 billion, paid it in full, cash, with no uh, uh, reduction whatsoever, whilst everybody else had to suffer reductions, in one installment and in one go. The IMF were delighted. They thanked him enormously. And he sold it to the public saying, we don't owe them anything, we don't need to ever listen to them again. What happened two years later? The IMF is back, because if the IMF doesn't give you the green light, there is no refinancing by the private banks of Argentina's foreign debt, and then we go into default again, and we collapse again. So that is why why they are so perverse because they have a discourse they have a, a, a speech for the general public especially the low cultured people and he says he's always uh, working to find out what happened with the desaparecidos the people who disappeared under the uh, uh, military civilian military regime in 76 to 83 he's always saying he is against the bankers that he is against the IMF but when it comes down to the nitty gritty his economy minister will do exactly what the bankers require when he came to power in uh, April and May of, of 2003, he kept on, he kept on the previous economy minister, Roberto Lavagna, just as Obama kept Robert Gates as defense minister from right. the George Bush days. And who is Roberto Lavagna? He is a founding member of the local branch of the CFR, of the Council on Foreign Relations in Argentina, which is called the CARI, Consejo Argentino para las Relaciones Internacionales, Argentine International Relationship, the Relations uh, Council. He kept one of the, 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 the uh, most favored guys by the bankers as economy minister. So you figure, you know, it's, it's very dangerous because his discourse goes uh, through the left, but his actions go on the right. You know, back when I was in, in uh, college, I started in, in when I lived in Puerto Rico. And uh, a couple of things. I remember I had some Argentinian friends who, who went to school with me there. And uh, they used to tell me the stories about hyperinflation and how in the morning a taxi ride would cost you less than in the afternoon. And I honestly believe they were, they were kidding, but they were not. But... Uh, Ireland, Portugal, Italy, Spain, and once again, Greece may have to get another bailout. Back in 2001, when the euro came along, 
everybody thought that was the cure for all for all the problems there. But it seems that it's not. What is going to happen with the euro if more countries continue? Because uh, Ireland two weeks ago was saying, no, we don't, we don't need the bailout, but they're caving in. What do you see happening over there? Well, uh, that and, and, and sorry, sorry that I that I stress this, but uh, bear with me. That's that's also uh, explained in one of the chapters in the book, chapter five, which I call "Death and Resurrection of the U.S. Dollar," and which ties in with the euro now, yes. and which was uh, published by Global Research. That it's a wonderful uh, uh, site in Canada. Michelle Chasudovsky and uh, and Matthias Chiang, who was a form, former he's actually the secretary of former Prime Minister Mohamed Mahathir from uh, Malaysia. Malaysia, sure. Yeah, I, I published this back in 2006, and I deal with the euro, and my personal view is that what we are now seeing is that they are macro-managing, I keep saying micro, it's really macro-managing, the controlled collapse of the United States dollars and the controlled collapse of the euro at the right time when they, when they are ready up and have up and running a replacement world currency, which they might even call dollar for, histor- for, for cultural reasons and for psychological reasons. Because basically, the euro, the whole European Union is a vast experiment. That's another testing ground, but of a much higher, more elitist level. It's a testing ground in, 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 in world government because what the European Union shows us is how a group of 20 countries, or I don't know how many they are, now I've lost track, are willing to uh, subordinate their national sovereignty politically, economically, financially, monetarily, in trade, to an overworld, which in their case just is limited to Europe. And okay, so we know that you know their 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 uh, legislation is in in in, in Strasbourg, and that the, all their administration is in Brussels, and their central bank is in Frankfurt am Main. <clears throat> and what does this show you? How can we start putting together a world government? And Europe has been a hell of an experiment, and the euro has been an experiment in a supranational currency now the problem is and here's where there's a there's a there's a comparison that i make in this specific article between the dollar and the euro the dollar is technically very weak and you know why because how many quantitative easings have we how many dollars are out there trillions and trillions and do trillions we do we trillions. really know how many dollars we have in circulation adrian we don't no we don't i don't th- i don't think even the 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 uh the, the federal reserve they can probably estimate they have no idea they've changed it they recovered it a lot of it has been counterfeit money that was the reason why they started putting these security strips on on, on dollar bills 10 right. or 12 years ago to begin with they don't know but whatever it is ben bernanke by the way ben bernanke before he became the governor of the federal reserve board was nicknamed helicopter ben oh yeah because of a famous speech he said if i have to reactivate the american economy by throwing dollar bills from helicopters i'll do that mm-hmm. so you know he, he sort of likes to to print money of easing. Sorry, that's what I should call it. Now, the, the, the dollar is technically very weak because it's over-issued. it's over uh, issued. However, it is culturally very strong. You should come to a country like Argentina, and even now when the dollar is weak, people will say dollars. If you're going to buy, if I'm going to sell my house, I wouldn't tell you, hey, my house is worth X uh, uh, number of pesos. I'm going to tell you, I will, I'll sell you my house for $200,000. Yeah. Because I know that whatever happens with the peso, with the economy, $200,000 is a lot of money, period. That's it. Because it's culturally very strong. Besides, they've done that on purpose. For over 100 years, it's uh, Washington on the $1 bill, Lincoln on the 5 Hamilton on the 10 Jackson on the 20 Grant on the 50 and frankly, on the hundred, they haven't changed that. They've shifted it around a little bit, but it is culturally a very strong currency with your symbols. The the the, the pyramid scheme is on your one dollar bill. The euro, however, is exactly the other way around. The euro is technically very strong. If you were to call up now the uh, European Central Bank in Frankfurt and ask them, "Hey, how many euros have you issued since 2001?" they will be able to tell you exactly to the cent. But culturally, it's very weak. And somebody did that on purpose because look at a euro bill. The only thing that's written on it is euro. In 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 in, in two actually it's also done in, in Greek letters because of the uh, Greek membership, and it shows you abstract gates and abstract arches and abstract ar- architectural things that don't even correspond to any specific monument. At least if they had shown a Gothic gate of the Charter Cathedral and uh, a, a Roman arch from the I don't know the Aqueduct of Segovia, you would figure okay at least it has some reference to something real. So it is culturally very weak. There are no national or or, or supernatural 
international personalities, whilst the American dollar is full of mottos and God we trust. Um, all, well, all, all mas- that, Masonic symbols too. All Masonic symbols. So it is culturally, even though we don't like that cultural side, it's, it's culturally very strong, but technically weak. And the euro is the other way around. So they know that all they have to do when they're, when they're ready, not when you're ready, but when they're ready, is let everybody realize, and the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times can easily help with their headlines. Hey, everybody, the dollar is hyperinflated. Let's start getting rid of it and tell the Europeans, hey, Europeans, you know, the euro mechanism is just not working because you cannot put a straitjacket on Greece, Ireland, and Germany so that they can have one common currency. And probably the ones that are really going to get fed up the first are the Germans who are going to say, to hell with Greece, to hell with Ireland, to hell with Portugal and Spain and Italy. I'm going to go back to the Deutschmark and to hell with the euro. And the Germans would probably be far better off. So the danger, the, the collapse of the dollar will be through uh, through really uh, clarifying that it is hyperinflated. And the collapse of the euro will be by the breakup, the fracturing of the European monetary mechanism. And what will they do? I believe that what they will do is say, but don't worry, everybody, here's the new global gold back dollar issued from, I don't know, maybe it'll be the Bank of International Settlements or some such uh, global uh, world government institution. So we're here to save the day. And they are just going to reinvent the system to continue with the same system on a global scale. And we go back to the Hegelian dialectic. Problem, Absolutely. reaction, solution. But we have to take our, our one and only break, uh, Adrian. I want you to tell us once again the title of your book and how to purchase it. Uh, yes, the book is called The Coming World Government, Tragedy and Hope. And since we're, we're trying to raise some funds on this, uh, anybody who, who, who'd like to purchase it uh, can either visit my website, www.asalbucci, that's A-S-A-L-B-U-C-H-I dot com dot A-R, or just send me an email to arsalbucci at gmail dot com. And we have links on our website. And folks, I have to tell you, Adrian offers a lot of his research and information for free. And this time, as a book author, he put all this together. And I have to tell you, it, it really it went beyond my expectations because he has a lot of historical data, a lot of information that affects not only people in Argentina, South America, but the whole world. When we come back, we're going to talk about something that a lot of other radio shows don't dare talk about, Adrian, and that's about Zionism. And what they're doing to the world, their presence and their overly expanding hydra uh, that is basically ruling the world. And you're only going to hear it here on Veritas. So please stay with us. I'm here with Adrian Salbucci from Argentina. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. Head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, click on subscribe and join us in the members area to tune in to the second part of this great show. We'll take a short break, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more.
This is Graham Hancock, and you're listening to The Veritas Show.